High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, wolf boys, wolf men, wolf boys to men, werewolves, and all the forms the wolf gene takes in the human body. This is High School Slumber Party, the podcast where we friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I am Brian Rodriguez, and the party's at my place this evening. But first, school is still in session, and we have some homework to chat about. This was your assignment. And I would like to see the results. First things first, please ignore the HVAC system that we have here in the High School Slumber Party basement. I'm kind of uh, hiding a bit. Things are getting a little hairy at High School Slumber Party, but more on that a little bit later. Remember, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. I need it more than ever now. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. While you're there, give us a five-star rating or a positive review of some sort. All that helps the algorithm, that helps the show survive. Question mark. Who knows? And thank you, thank you for stopping by today and listening. Really appreciate that. We have a great episode for you today. Silver Bullet is the film. Another Corey movie, Corey Haim again today, and... Another Mike Manzi appearance, of course. I cannot wait for you to hear the Silver Bullet episode. I hope you heard our last Two Corys episode, which was our last episode released here on the High School Slumber Party feed. We covered Blown Away, a lot of talk of time bombs. Mike Manzi was there as well. And, of course, Christian Larson. Whoa, 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 the bell didn't dismiss you. I dismiss you. I feel like we're getting a faster hook these days. But please, please, please stay in your seats I beg of you, I have more to share aside from all this Corey talk. It is our senior year. We're almost at our 300th episode. I know you're expecting a yearbook special. I know you're expecting a big blowout, but things things have been weird here in High School Slumber Party. So you want to listen to next week's episode because... The fate of High School Slumber Party will be decided. I don't even know what that is yet. I don't know if we're going to graduate. I don't know if we're going to be canceled. I'm very nervous. Apparently, we're getting a new superintendent here in the High School Slumber Party School District. I'm just... Look, if I seem nervous, I am nervous. I, I love this show. The show's my baby. But I haven't been taking care of my baby, I guess. I don't know if Dyfus is going to come steal my baby away. Hope not. But here we are, and that is the reality So for now, please, please just enjoy the Silver Bullet episode while my fate is being decided by the powers that be. Oh, and hello, follow me on social media. My personal social media is Oh My Rodriguez and High School Slumber Party everywhere else. Those of you who have reached out in all honesty and seriousness, awesome. 
Thank you so much. You made me feel better about this period and gave me some really great ideas about the potential direction of the show if we don't get canceled. <sighs> anyway, werewolves, fun, one of the two Corys, Stephen King, Silver Bullet. This is a cult classic, and this is a fun episode. So pack your favorite jammies, tell your mother to me up Ryan's, because we're about to get our party on. I leave you with a song made for the film called Joyride, and it is a joy to listen to. It's by Jay Chataway and Rob B. Mathis. Class dismissed. Mike Manzi, or should I say Monster Mike? Can I borrow Monster Mike for this episode? Hey everyone, it's Michael Morbius, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I used that same joke on my other show, so I figured I'd get as much mileage out of it as possible. (laughs) But yes, uh, tonight I'll be Monster Mike Manzi, of course. We're talking werewolves, baby. Yes, uh... We are continuing our Corey legacy. Our, I love how they have their legacy and our legacy is watching their legacy. <laughs> <laughs> essentially, essentially. This is our second year of watching Corey films. Uh, today's film is 1985's Silver Bullet. This was on the, one on the fence of whether we recovered it or not, but why not? Um, <laughs> in early, in early Haim film. Yeah, yeah. So Mike... Or Monster Mike, introduce yourself in the High School Slumber Party way, and we'll get underway here. Yeah. So, uh, Mike Manzi, RHS, Class of 97. Go Maroons! The Maroon Monsters! (laughs) Oh, that'd be cool if they were the Ridgewood Monsters or something. Yeah, any school calling themselves the Monsters would be uh, psychological warfare against another team, (laughs) I think, overpowering any animal. It's like, well, we're the Monsters, so like... So, of course, you are a co-host of The Monsters That Made Us, which you cover the Universal Monsters. How many Wolfman films have you done already? Oh, so, gee, surprisingly, there's only been two. There's been The Wolfman, and then the sequel to The Wolfman is Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which is like the fifth Frankenstein movie. It's awesome, though. It's terrific. Might be a recommend tonight. Who knows? Ooh. But as we are, Dan and I, right now, about a maybe a year and a half through the original run, and only two werewolf movies. Well, three, I should say. There was Werewolf of London, but that isn't really in continuity. That was before they had everything worked out according to plan, as it were. But yeah, so I guess three. I guess three. So what is your history, then, with wolfmen and werewolves and... The wolfing genre. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love werewolf stuff. Michael Jackson's Thriller, American Werewolf in London, Teen Wolf. Which we we covered together here on Nice Slumber Party. Always love when, uh, you know, interests collide. And it's great that the werewolf 
became a genre unto its own, you know, like it had teen movies, it had comedies, it had dramas. Uh, it's still going to this to this day. There's like a couple out over the last few years. They're pretty good. But yeah, I mean, I've always been down with the werewolves. You know, I've been wondering recently where that all came from. And there's that new trailer for the Norsemen and in it, they the Vikings dress up as wolves. So I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if that's like one of the... Uh, sort of origins of the werewolf is like the Vikings like, <laughs> running around just as wolves and stuff. And Mike, you do have Norse blood. That is true too. You know, the good kind, you know, uh, <laughs> so, you know I'm a uh, disciple of Thor or something, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I just, I've always loved werewolf stuff, uh, Eddie Munster, uh, everything, you know, if you really want to know the, the deep, deep about that, like go check out some of those monsters that made us episodes or Dan and I like just go way way far into our backstories about that yeah and uh, of course here we we've talked teen wolf but we also talked twilight a bunch on high school slumber party you got the wolf boys there <laughs> team jacob taylor lautner a uh, different <laughs> different film today um had you seen this one had you seen silver bullet no man like this one was wow. uh, yeah i'd seen parts of it and i it was one that i always said to myself like i gotta save this one or like i gotta watch it from the start um i remember being on a bunch and being like wait a minute Corey hames in a werewolf movie and i was like wait a minute Corey hames in a stephen king werewolf movie i'm like wait a minute Busey's in this movie too <laughs> i don't know how i missed this one but you, you know you can't watch it all as hard as you try and yeah, this was the first time I saw it uh, end to end. It's interesting because we've talked Feldman in a Stephen King movie, and we've talked Feldman in a horror movie. Well, of course, uh, the Feldman Stephen King movie was Stand By Me, and the Feldman horror movie, what, Friday the 13th was that? Uh, was it four? Yeah, I think it was four. I get him. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, part four, part four. Tommy Jarvis uh, trilogy there. Yeah, so this is like the Haim kind of version of that, like classic monster, and he's the kid in it, if you will. Yeah, and he also did uh, the the Dean Koontz movie that we did with the oh, yeah. Smart Dog. Remember Smart Dog? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Hey, what so, was that one? Oh, The Watcher? Was it Watcher? Oh, the wa- Watchers, Watchers. Watchers, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> And so it's kind of funny how both Corys have a Stephen King movie and both Corys have like another horror movie. And then Feldman was also in Gremlins, which, you know, depending on your age, a horror movie or not. And, and of course, the both of them were in The Lost Boys. So this is not a foreign yeah. genre to them. No, I love it. It's too bad none of them did like a mummy movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the mummy genre, not as popular as vampires and werewolves. No, but I, I it's coming back. We got Moon Knight running around in his rats. True. That's my mummy man right now. That's pretty cool. So. <laughs> now, th- this is a film where Corey, again, is a younger kid. He's not technically a teen. His sister is, so we're going to count it, and it's whatever at this point, you know? Well, but <laughs> I think this was the year before Lucas. That was the movie, right? Lucas, yeah. Lucas, the little kid. Yeah, and we also got to talk about when this takes place, what is going on with school. Oh it's, it's so weird in that respect, right? Okay, so this is based on a Stephen King book called Cycle of the Werewolf. And as we've talked about previously, there have been so many Stephen King adaptations. Um, this was the ninth ever. I don't know how many there's been since then, because there's also been remakes of adaptations, adaptations of ad- adaptations. Yeah, yeah. He's in the Guinness book, I gotta I gotta believe, you know. 
for most film adaptations. Oh, I would I would certainly say he has the most. Um, it was supposed to take place in the seventies, right? Yeah, I think it was supposed to be like seventy six or something. I thought it just took place in the eighties. I mean, there's nothing to really set this in a specific time period. I mean, that's the problem too. Is like late seventies, early eighties. There really wasn't much of a difference, I guess, unless your house had like an Atari or something. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that until after watching the movie. I went back and watched some of it again, and I and I was like reading up on it because I was like, "When does this take place?" Not just like <laughs> what year is it, but like what time of year is it? I it was a little confusing in that end. And this, I would say, it, it's a horror film, sure, but it feels like some cross between kids horror and like this isn't like slasher slasher, you know? Yeah. Which is the weird thing. There is blood and stuff like that, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's not It's not quite, what's it called? Monster Squad, right? It's not quite Monster no, Squad. Level. No, It's so weird. It's so close. Like, it could really, it really just needs to be shoved in one direction or the other. Like, I, I was shocked to find out that this movie's rated R. Um, I yeah, thought just sure, crazy. I thought for sure, you know, because if it was R, like, there's some, there's some gore and there's some scenes in here that are, that are horror and stuff, but like, if it was R, I expected to see more. And it was just like, well, you could really just cut this back to PG-13 so much easier. And it feels like that's what they want because it's it even feels less like a horror film and more like some kind of weird coming of age film of like a brother and sister growing closer together <laughs> during some kind of like issue going on around town that's driving everybody nuts. Or, you know, like people are being killed in town and this brother and sister find a way to kind of like coexist you know, under one roof. Yeah. I had, I had brothers and sisters and stuff, you know, so it just feels like throw a werewolf into that mix. And it's a <laughs> metaphor. It's, that's all it is. <laughs> a werewolf, a drunk uncle and Carrie Busey. There you go. Oh God, dude. <laughs> Busey and werewolves. That should be the tagline to this film. Um, so if you, if you want to look for this film, it's in a bunch of places. Sometimes it's, it's a stylized as Stephen King's silver bullet. Uh, definitely trying to capitalize on the author's fame in the 80s here. Uh, but here goes. Here's the back of the DVD, which I read every week. Something is killing off townsfolk in Tanner's Mills, which is, side note, a small town in Maine where a lot of things Stephen King are based. You know, we, we hear Castle Rock a lot. Apparently, in the Stephen King world, oh, it's is it Tarker's Mill? Sorry, it's Tarker's Mills. I don't know. This is the next town over from Castle Rock, so... Oh, interesting. All right. <laughs> Down the highway from Salem's Lot, too. I <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> the weird part of Maine. Something mysterious. Something ingenious. That doesn't sound right. Sorry, it's a blurry back of DVD. Something ingenious. Something remotely human. But the only person in town with the courage to stop this lurking menace is a 13-year-old boy. Hey, back of the DVD says he's 13. Hey. Confined to a wheelchair since birth. Oh, can we just pause there for a second? Yeah, sure. Never mentioned in the movie why he's in a wheelchair. Um, no. So thank you back at the DVD box. <laughs> Exposition that's not in the movie. No. That's not even, apparently that's not in, in the book either. So. Okay. Thank, that's... thank you. Yeah, you know. And then uh, if you're not familiar with werewolf, werewolf lore, 
Obviously, a silver bullet kills a werewolf, right? But his wheelchair in the film is also called the silver bullet. So I thought the whole time he was going to kill the werewolf with the wheelchair. Ooh, that would have been nice foreshadowing. There's another There's another thing they set up that I thought they were going to use at the end, but they just blow in the very next scene as well. But yeah, because why is his wheelchair called the silver bullet? Maybe it's Busey's favorite beer. We don't know that. <laughs> it's <just a> coincidence. <laughs> And then uh, I'll finish reading the back of the DVD, but just want to mention that Haim in his wheelchair, obviously we know Haim's not a disabled person, but they weren't really casting like that in the 80s. No, but it would be good to, to do that nowadays. Like, remake this movie, make it a hard R, and find, you know, someone who could play it properly. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, yeah, I agree in, with that. In that, in, that, in that regard. I agree with that for sure. But the silver bullet is his motorized wheelchair. There's two versions in the film. And Gary Busey essentially invents it for him. One is way too fast for like a kid to have. Like, it's essentially a motor, a motorcycle that's a wheelchair. Yeah, and his first one's kind of like a golf cart. You know? <laughs> like, it's got handlebars. Like it's really rad, to be honest. I mean, if anything, maybe they should have taken a cue about that from this movie for children in, in chairs to be like, look how much cooler they can kind of be. But I don't know. Um, and then just to finish the back of the DVD. This is adapted to screen by suspense master Stephen King from his Cycle of the Werewolf novelette. This exhilarating thriller features outstanding special effects by three-time Oscar winner Carlo Rambaldi. We'll get into that. The background of this film is <laughs> fascinating. Did you read about like what happened on this film? No, but I know about like that Rambaldi was involved. I know a little bit. There's an interesting Coppola connection with this director. So I, I I went back a little, but I didn't want to go too far to blow all the surprises on the on the air. Oh, interesting. You'll have to let me know that Coppola connection because I don't think I know that one. But um, this is one of the Stephen King films that he actually adapted himself. Yeah, I noticed that he wrote the screenplay, which you know I just automatically assumed it was coke fueled because <laughs> just that era and it was right around the time of maximum overdrive which is the only movie i believe that he was ever he ever directed and for you know people on the and the behind the scenes of that describe it very much as coke fueled as well i'm just mentioning that because it's been mentioned and it's fun to mention that kind of stuff but you know that's not funny you know i don't or anything of that and he's whatever but like you could kind of feel it that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> you could kind of feel it Apparently, he was pretty involved uh, with the production as well. Um, I know he had some other stuff adapted. Maybe he just you know, wasn't a fan of how that got adapted. I'm not sure. But like I said, he was involved and consulted you know, in multiple steps of the way. But the real person behind this film is famed producer Dino De Laurentiis. Are, are you familiar with Dino De Laurentiis? Oh, absolutely. Like famed B-movie megastar. There's blockbusters and then there's like his level of blockbusters. And so I'm like, I love his, you know, from everything from like, you know, the evil dead to King Kong. I mean, that's just like some American stuff and he's just prolific overseas. So yeah, I, you know, a lot of people groan when they see Dino De Laurentiis. I, I usually smile and I know what I'm in for. And it's generally <laughs> like a schlocky fun time. It's funny because we've talked a lot of Corman here in High School Slumber Party, but I don't think we've talked a lot of De Laurentiis. No, because he's he generally is overseas. I you know mostly, especially around this time too. Like his name starts to grow in America, I believe, around this time. Like he'll do that King Kong with Charles Grodin, 
um, like pretty soon. Like that's a good one. I think that's 82. Um, and then he starts to do like the evil dead stuff and he's doing more horror and uh, more blockbusters. I think he even gets like pretty mainstream for a while. Yeah. I mean, also her notoriously cheap or just corner cutting knows how to cut a corner. Well, <laughs> I, would, I would just say that I wouldn't say cheap. I would say knows how to cut a corner, you know, knows what it means. No, knows what you need on screen as opposed to like what you think you need on screen. <laughs> you know, kind of economic thing. frugal. There we go. Yeah. Economic <laughs> filmmaker because economic can mean more than just watching the money. It can mean like, you know, you don't want to overcrowd, the eye, you know, you don't want to give them too much to look at or whatever, you know, like, like the prequels are not economic <laughs> visually, <laughs> visually. So that stuff too. So he's the boss here. And the original director was a man. And notice I say original director was a name, man named Don Coscarelli. Okay. He's most famous for the Phantasm series, as well as the film Beastmaster or the Beastmaster. Oh, love the Beastmaster. That's crazy. <laughs> and he... And Dino and Stephen King and the brain trust around this film, including Carl Rambaldi, who I mentioned. Um, Rambaldi, I think he won Oscars for E.T. and Alien. Like, that's his famous special effects work. Yeah, he was like Spielberg's guy. Yeah, yeah. And they could not figure out how to make this werewolf, you know, exist on camera, what they wanted the werewolf to look like. Stephen King wanted kind of a... I would say Jaws-esque werewolf, where we don't really see it a lot till the end. Other people wanted something different, right? Mike, they shot most of this movie without knowing what the werewolf looked like. Yeah, it's crazy. You get kind of that feeling of it, of it's like, they want to show, but they don't want to show. Like, maybe they got something cool and they're not confident about it, or maybe they just want to tease it until the end and blow your mind or something like that. But it's just, at this point in time, you got to call, like, Rick Baker. You got to call... The new dudes, like not the guy who like made E.T., you know, like I don't want to see his werewolf. Like I want to see, you know, the the next generation of effects artists that are going to go crazier with it. And and yeah, to be quite honest, it's it's not that impressive. Transformation's cool. I mean, but transformations are cool. Like they just are, you know, no matter what I think, like no matter how, you know, cheap they might look. But I, I was I was struggling because the werewolf doesn't even do a lot of werewolf killing. Like at one point, he kills like two people with a bat. Yeah, it's like what is a werewolf doing killing someone with a baseball bat? <laughs> like it's so bizarre. So when Don Coscarelli saw a lot of Italian names here, I apologize. Carlo Rombaldi's werewolf, he's just like I'm out. You know, he's like Dino, mm. this is not the movie I wanted. So basically on the fly, they hired uh, the who became credited as the director, Dan Atias, to direct it. Um, were you familiar with him? He seems like he's mostly known for TV. Yeah, I know. The, I mean, it, does it say here, is he directing like, he's directing The Boys? Like he directed episodes of that and I don't too know. I know him for this movie, Hammett. I've seen, it's like a noir thing. And that's the movie with Francis Ford Coppola in it. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> which is, really? Which is really weird. Um, and yeah, like the main character is Dashiell Hammett, um, you know, from crime fiction. And I've seen it like once a long time ago, but I don't think he's really done any other feature films except for this and that. And it's a very obscure director. So Yeah, I mean, he's big in TV. Like I said, he directed Sopranos, The Wire, 
Uh, oh, okay, okay. Deadwood, Lost, Alias. That, oh, wow. Well, that makes sense. Terry O'Quinn's in this. He's on Lost. They must have had some kind of reunion. Oh, cool. Uh, and this does have a little more of a television look to it. And that's not, I don't want to say that in a disparaging way because, like, it's just some movies, I don't know, especially for a horror movie, this doesn't really pull off like the shadow work or any of that. And there's one fog scene where there's just way too much fucking fog. And like, I never in my life would have thought like, I'd say, <laughs> turn off the fog machine, but it's like, Jesus Christ, it's up to their goddamn waist. Um, so it's like, there's, there seems to be a lot kind of working against them to begin with. Maybe Dino being a bit stingy or them just not getting along and, and, you know, uh, crossing wires with communications and, and all that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I could, I could see him getting more out of television than feature film the way that this went down. Yeah. I mean, and look, whatever, like if he found his niche, I'm sure he makes a lot of money. Dude, those are some awesome shows. I wonder what episode of Lost he direct. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, uh... And, and as far as the cast goes, we've already mentioned Gary Busey as Uncle Red. Oh, my boy. Oh, Jesus. Uncle Red knows. Like, <laughs> he, he's the, the drunk uncle. Apparently, Gary Busey, which shouldn't surprise you if you, you watch the movie, apparently, Gary Busey really connected with this character. Oh, uh, you're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he's playing himself. Like, that's how it comes across. He is 100% himself. So he would do the first take or one of the takes as Stephen King, what he wrote, right? But then he would do a lot of like ad lib takes because again, he oh. felt like he connected with the character. And Stephen King and the director loved the ad libs so much that most of the ad libs are what make the final cut of the film. Oh, like when he says stuff like jumping Jehoshaphat or like half <laughs> dancing Christ on a lily pad and shit. <laughs> He's just yeah. making up wild stuff. I was like, whoa. I was like, I just thought that was more bad Stephen King writing, but. <laughs> no, I guess I guess it's Gary Gary Busey. Specifically, the scene at the uh, the gun place when they're making the silver bullet was like oh my god, lived. <laughs> how can you? I mean, like, how can you even dare to write dialogue for that moment in the first place? Like, <laughs> <laughs> play out in silence. That is insane. That oh man, yeah. And Uncle Red. I, I don't know what else to say. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about him some more. But uh, the other person I wanted to mention before we get into the family and stuff was uh, Everett McGill, who plays the Reverend, who, spoiler yeah. alert, is also the werewolf here. I, I want to bring him up because, well, one, have you seen him in anything? Oh, Twin Peaks. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Definitely Twin Peaks. I forgot his character's name. Oh, Big Ed Hurley in that. I just remembered his Big face Ed. from Twin Peaks. Yeah, definitely. And Big Ed is like one of the kindest, gentlest souls on the planet. And to see him, you know, try and run over Corey Haim in a wheelchair was sh fucking shocking, man. Like, that was <laughs> fucked up. I was curious if you, uh, I know you're more of a Bond guy than me. Apparently he's in License to Kill. Oh, that's uh, one of my favorite Bonds. That's That's got my boy in it. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Lynch, he's in in the original adaptation of Dune. And what it was, there was another thing that I noticed from his filmography. Like, oh, I've probably seen him in that. Oh, yeah. So License to Kill also has Benicio Del Toro in it in a very young. Del oh, Toro really? As, yeah, as a henchman in it. So, yeah, I love those Timothy Dalton ones. Very good. Yeah, so he he's our, our bad guy here. And actually, he is credited as the werewolf because the other thing that happened on set that pissed everyone off. So they hired. First, they didn't know what they wanted the werewolf to look like. Then the dude comes up with a costume. 
the director quits over the costume and they hired like a professional dancer to be the werewolf. Okay. And he had very rhythmic movements and he was supposed to look different than any other werewolf on screen. And apparently, you know, De Laurentiis hated the way this guy moved and he got so offended that he either got fired or quit or whatever. So they just had the, the Reverend dude, Everett McGill put on the suit and actually be the werewolf. Oh, weird. Wow. <laughs> so it's crazy. not a stunt guy. It's just him walking around in the suit. I thought you were going to say like they started shooting and they still didn't know who the werewolf was going to be. <laughs> That'd be cool. Because, because like it could be Busey too. Like, he, you know, I feel like he's a red herring, like uncle red, red herring, that kind of thing. And there's one amazing scene with the Reverend when he has his nightmare about the church. Oh but yeah. Edwards, like that feels almost like a reshoot to me after they decided he was going to be the werewolf. (laughs) Let's shoot like an extra scene because that gives it away. Like that, that movie is that, that moment in the movie is like, tells you who the fucking werewolf is. And like, what a better reveal it would have been if, you know, later Corey Haim is going to shoot a firecracker in the werewolf's eyes and make him a one eye. And then later you see the Reverend and he's only got he's got like the patch on like that would have been a way better reveal for who the werewolf was, you know, and then you put that fever dream later in the movie. I don't care, but whatever. <laughs> it's the way it happened. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's a great scene effects wise, but you're totally right. It gave it away. It gave it away. It's hard at a time like this to find the words to offer you any comfort there is no comfort (laughs) there is only private justice the bible tells us not to fear the, the terror that creepeth by night, or that which flieth by noonday. And yet we do. We do. Because there's so much we don't know, and we feel very small. Reverend, he was torn apart! The eye patch turn was where you should have been like, oh, it's the priest, you know, and it wasn't. So I, I don't know. And, and of course, our like teenagers, because we got to talk teenagers. This is high school slumber party are the aforementioned Corey Haim. If you don't know who Corey Haim is, why are you listening to this Corey Haim lap? But uh, uh, the his older sister is played by an actress named Megan Follows. What a name if you're in a horror film. <laughs> it follows. Yeah. I thought she was pretty good in this. I, I wasn't too familiar with her. So this is weird, Mike. Okay. She's the narrator of the film. Yeah. <laughs> like, what, but- what the fuck is that about? This is before Stand By Me. So that also, though, felt like an after the fact. It was like they they put the movie together and they're like, shit. Uh, a lot of this is kind of incoherent. We never said like what time of year this takes place. We never mentioned like all this important information in the movie. Like we just have to have her come and do like exposition a couple of times throughout just to make sure that uh, everyone's up to speed. And I still got lost, but uh, I don't know if that's how 
it actually went down, but that's the way it felt. And after hearing about like what a kind of crazy production this could have been, it very well seems that one day they just decided like, that's it. We're done. Like wrap it up. We're going home. Um, <laughs> like put the edit together and they're like, we're missing some shit. Like too, there's no money. Like get the girl back in to do a voiceover. <laughs> well, it's very confusing because she's speaking as if it's many years, as if many years have passed. I was thinking that Corey Haim's character died. Yeah. Cause she's talking like that. She's like, you know, I didn't always get along with my brother. And even how it ends, spoiler alert, that doesn't happen. So it was just kind of weird. It does focus on the two of them and it kind of ping pongs back and forth between their point of views. We get a lot of uh, Corey bonding with his uncle and then we get a lot of her as well, especially when she's going around investigating, if you will, and yeah, collecting cans and that scene. But that's what's so weird is like, it is so much not her character's movie at all like why not have Corey Haim do the voiceover it makes so much more sense if it was his character that did the because the only time we hear the voiceover is when her character's on screen from what I can remember and how is she remembering moments she's not a part of if this is her fucking story like it's just so confusing you know it just felt like they got a little lost with that concept my guess was this movie like a lot of movies was definitely concepted more in the cutting room. Um, I've never read the novella or novelette or whatever they called it, but from like reading the Wikipedia of it, it does seem like it's more of a shared story between okay. the two of them. And I could see versions of that, but one of the highlights of this film that a lot of people have gone back to it for is the Corey Haim, Gary Busey, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the Corey Haim, Gary Busey relationship, right? Like uh, the bonding between his uncle. So it does seem like in the cutting room, they focus more on that. And it's okay. only a 90 minute movie, right? I'm assuming, yeah. you know, through the magic of editing, like yes. de-emphasized her, which again, begs your question. So why is she still narrating? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and also if Stephen King did write this screenplay, something inside me says that it probably was more like one of his books. And we even get moments like that where I'm sure there were just like lots. There probably wasn't like a single main character. We probably followed it more like we follow everyone in town, you know, because there's this one moment where we overhear some lady got pregnant and wants an abortion or something. And then we like follow her until she gets killed by the werewolf. But it just seems like that's very Stephen King where it's like, now the book is this character's book for like a chapter or two. And now we're going to go and like dive into their entire backstory and see what makes them tick. And I feel like maybe this movie originally was sort of set up. Like we got to know the sheriff way more. We got to know the Reverend way more. Like we got to, you know, and then by the end, they were just like, let's just focus on the uncle and nephew stuff. Because quite honestly, that shit, the best stuff. They're great together. They feel like real family. Like I want you know, eight more movies with them instead of Corey Feldman, you know, no disrespect (laughs) to the Feldman or anything, but like Gary Busey and Corey Haim have like uh, awesome chemistry. And so I don't blame them for really like focusing the movie on, on their stuff. Well, it's funny because uh, Jake Busey, Gary Busey's son was around the same age as Corey Haim. And the two kids bonded on set because he was on set with his father and I feel like since Gary Busey has a son around the same age, 
he he has that kind of chemistry with Corey Haim, like a, like a father son relationship. Even though he's the uncle, he knows how to talk to a kid. He knows how to relate to a kid and be cool to a kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think he just nailed it. He probably just was looking at Haim like it was his son. And, you know, <laughs> he feels so natural in this. <laughs> you know? I mean, even that half a bottle of wild turkey might be real. <laughs> um, And yeah, just looking back at the Wikipedia article for what this is based on, which is, again, something called Cycle of the Werewolf. It is exactly what you say, Mike. It is more about the town. Each chapter is a short story, and it looks like it's from multiple people's points of view. Okay. Mainly the boy, but still. Yeah, because I just I just feel like that's his style. Like, I mean, I've only read, like, you know, I could count on my two hands the number of his books I've read, but they, you know, like Salem's Lot and The Stand, like uh, Hearts in Atlantis, like all these books, like, are about everybody in that book. You know, it's like yeah. very, like, there's a main dude or, or, or there's a main character or whatever, but, like, it's also about everybody. Like, you really do get to know everything and stuff, so... You know, maybe that's why he didn't write so many of his own adaptations because he was just doing it. It was just being too literal with them, you know. Oh, maybe it's a good call. And then you were again. You already mentioned Terry O'Quinn is the sheriff in this, and he's very famous from Lost. So yeah. and a, stepfather, right? He's the stepfather yeah. in those horror movies. Stepfather. <laughs> and then the other thing I wanted to mention is that the film today is considered a cult classic. I've heard a lot of people have uh, huh. written. Two High School Slumber Party even mentioned this to me, like, oh, are you covering Silver Bullet? And I'd never really? seen it, so I wasn't sure. Uh, I think it's the Busey thing, because Busey kind of has had a bit of a revival because of his, his sort of erraticness. Yeah, Busey, the, every generation has new Stephen King fans. Like, uh, Yeah, yeah, that too. That. At the time, it kind of just broke even. Uh, it did a little bit more than break even, you know? like, But a lot of people, and I read this in a couple places, said that it was plagued by a really crappy marketing campaign. You know, on our social media, we, we released the posters. And the posters, if you look at them, are so generic. Oh. Like, they're just mostly the moon and a little bit of the wolf. And There's some, like, retro oh, posters yeah. that look cooler. But the main one, it's just like no one cared, you know? There's, um, there's a really great cover to the new Blu-ray where there's a werewolf holding a baseball bat. So I like that. <laughs> that is very accurate. <laughs> See, and you could tell I love Blu-ray covers now because like it's more about what people have latched on to this film. And yeah, yeah, exactly what you said. I can't forget. Like, it's so weird that a werewolf will kill with a baseball bat and not his natural claws and you know stuff like that. They try and say the thing at one point where it's like, well, you know, it's not a full moon. How's he a wolf man? And they're like, well, maybe the closer it gets to a full moon, the more like an actual wolf he is. So he's kind of kind of like halfway there. And I was like, they're trying to explain why he's using a bat. <laughs> why, why isn't he just driving a goddamn car? <laughs> <laughs> why isn't he playing a small forward for his high school basketball team? Who knows? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or why isn't he, you know, boxing in college? <laughs> You're so lucky you're never going to have to watch that movie. <laughs> never say never, but yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's talk about some favorite scenes and moments from the film. Uh, we've already mentioned a bunch, but you know we can kind of go more in, in depth with it. But I didn't take too many notes for this film. Yeah, the most to talk about are probably like the kills. You know, like uh, there's one right away where the guy gets decapitated and then run over by a train. 
like holy shit Woo. like that's that's one way to start a movie i was i was at attention after that you know i was like okay i'm in it's weird because in the movie there's a lot of beats that remind me of jaws that's what they want you to remember i mean i guess so, so right cuz th- there's that which you know is sort of reminiscent of the early shark attack um i a lot of horror does this though so i'm not going to credit jaws with just that but then like as more and more well there's a mare right but <laughs> he's not the same <laughs> as the jaws mare but as more and more kills are happening in the town they have like that town meeting of like let's get them you know oh like, yeah yeah that really feels like a universal monster movie that where like they mob up and uh yeah it's like uh private justice is what they call it in this movie but <laughs> i love how like you know one or two people die uh and then like a kid is killed and then people in the bar start like shit talking the cops they're like you good for nothing pigs like can't do shit and they're like i'll kick your ass and then they're like we're gonna form a mob (laughs) and they're like don't do that it's like well tough crap because that's what's happening well that's kind of why i brought it up mike because like i think of it as jaws but i you and i've talked jaws too on your wonderful wonderful second film podcast yeah, second time around. Second time around. Beautiful, beautiful podcast. Keep up the good work there. But uh, yeah. we, we talked Jaws too there, but we've just, yeah, I think, talked Jaws independently. Like, I see it as a Jaws connection, but Jaws itself doesn't get enough credit to me as a horror film. Everyone sees it as like a yeah. like an, a kind of an action-adventure summer blockbuster. But there are so many cues to what you're saying, like the universal monster things that you talk so well about on the Monsters That Made Us, like the idea of the town mob or whatever or just not you know kind of understanding this thing i will say though the werewolf here is not very sympathetic right like there are not many moments where i'm like well i kind of feel for him you know like he's not an mm. evil priest but he's still well, not he's he, he's not a nice well, one either you, you come to find out that i think the movie wants to express something they didn't express very well that this Reverend Wolfman is on a mission. We never find out how he became a werewolf man, but it seems that he's only like he's targeting his kill. So he kills the railroad guy in the beginning because he was a terrible drunk. He's going to kill the pregnant lady because she tries to commit suicide. You know, if he was really a good reverend, he would, you know, just stop her from killing herself he wouldn't then murder her, and her <laughs> <Yeah. baby. laughs> but nevertheless they try to make that his mo in a way but it never really lands solidly because halfway through the movie he just starts kill- trying to kill children and you're like there's no way even though they send the most horrible ransom letter where they're like <laughs> we-, <laughs> we know it's you we know who you are why don't you just kill yourself they send him like five <laughs> or six of these letters, and he's like, "It's a sin to kill oneself," and all and all this other bullshit. And so, what? Like, why don't you just like? You're not even trying to get killed by them. You're trying to kill them. So it's like I didn't see him as being being like I can't control this or like. There's no empathy for this guy whatsoever. And I and I do think that that's a misstep. Like they did not set up this reverend guy at all. It's just like they chose him to be the werewolf, you know, like out of a hat or something. And the funniest thing is in the very beginning, they have like this 
fundraiser fair and he and his character stands up to, t- to talk at a podium and then just like cut away from him like they were about to set this guy up in the movie and they just cut away and they go to the moment where Corey and his friend scare his sister with the with the garden snake i was like what is what is even happening it's odd uh, i wonder if there is an alternate cut of this film I just don't know. I mean, I don't know. A lot of it seems like a lot of them are surfacing from around this time in cult movies, right? Like uh, the movie becomes like it gains some kind of cult status, and then oh look at this! Like the director or something like held on to a work print, and uh, now we got that on the on the second disc of the Blu-ray. So it seems like that kind of movie. I can't believe I can't believe Corey's family name in this is Coleslaw. But yeah. Yeah. What is that? Is that because we eat coleslaw and they're set up to get eaten by something? <laughs> well, they want to go to the fair, right? It's also Halloween time. I don't know when this movie takes place. And and I think you kind of alluded to this. Like, are they not in school? So that's so weird. See, that's why I think the voiceover is here and a couple other things might have been kind of like reshot or removed around or something. And she says that it is... Right after school ended and summer was about to begin. But then later in the movie, it's like September and they're going to see fireworks. And I get it. Like a lot of people have left town, but then it's October and she's like carrying her books and like a binder around. But they never show school. It's so confusing. I I couldn't. I don't know. It's very confusing time wise, but I'll go back to what the best part of the movie is to me which is again the relationship between uncle and nephew here when they have they're just like their moments of i don't know i don't want to call it bonding it is but like when when he basically starts to become a better uncle i just love it i love how and 90 percent of the film he doesn't believe that there's a werewolf in town the gary Busey character uncle red right like he's just got oh kids but he's still <laughs> Brian, the fa- that famous line. <laughs> we get it here too. You're right. <laughs> but the fact that he still like gives the kids agency, like he isn't necessarily talking down to them. He's mm-hmm. he's talking to them like as if you if you were to tell me, Mike, oh, I saw a werewolf, I would probably be like, Mike, you're nuts. But I wouldn't think of you as like I was better than you. Or like, oh, Mike, that Mike again, he's fooling things. I would just be like. Are you sure you saw that? So I just love that he can he can speak to them on their level. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, he seems like a step away from one of Stephen King's magical characters in a sense where he's just like, you know, not right in the head. You know, everything from like that guy Tom, M-O-O-N, from, from The Stand to the guy um, in uh, the Thin Green Line. What's it called? The Long Green Line? The... You know, the oh, the green, mile, the green Mile. The Green Mile. The Green Mile. Sorry, the Green Mile. <laughs> like, it feels like Uncle Red is a step away from one of those characters who is, like, kind of maybe touched with a magic kind mm. of sense or something. Because, like, I think they're trying to say, like, because he's, like, coming out of this alcoholism, like, he's more on the level with these children than with these adults. So it's, like, our gang on a weird level. It's, like, this weird, <laughs> like... Kind of thing, or, or they're saying like these children are on the level of adults, and he's the only one that will actually treat him with any kind of respect or, or listen to him, you know. And and for heaven's sake, the parents are checked out of this film entirely. So, 
yeah, I, I just really enjoy their whole relationship. And I love that Gary Busey isn't just going to write him off or so he's going to sort of entertain them for a while. And then he's going to be more and more convinced. And then <laughs> the moment he's actually going to like go as far as to make them a silver bullet to shut them up. But then he's like, I'm not so sure. Maybe like, let's see where this goes. Like, yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic between all of them. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I love when he eventually makes a silver bullet or he gets that, that, guy in town to make the silver bullet before then it's it's not crazy because he's already made these crazy wheelchairs for for Corey Haim's character so he clearly like likes to give him gifts he definitely feels bad for him but when he goes to this man I guess this gunsmith he definitely seems like again one of these magical Stephen King characters like he he knows the old way essentially make bullets like that and when and when he's like oh it's just for kids when gary Busey, sorry says to him it's oh just for kids to you know have fun with or whatever and the guy's like or kill werewolves you know <laughs> yeah. hello uh my nephew has just discovered the lone ranger and i wondered if you could help me here you want a silver bullet huh the man Uncle Red had gone to see was more than a gunsmith. He was, Uncle Red said, an old world craftsman, a sort of wizard of weapons. He confirmed the high grade silver content of my crucifix and Marty's medallion, melted them down, and molded them into a silver bullet. Marty had read all the legends about werewolves. And though they differed on several minor points, they all agreed on one. It takes silver to kill a werewolf. And we were taking no chances. There it is. Nicest piece of work I ever done, I think. It's got a low grain low. So it won't tumble. Ought to be pretty accurate. Oh, well, shoot, it's just a gag. I mean, uh, what the heck are you gonna shoot a 44 bullet at anyway? Made out of silver. How about a werewolf? Yeah, he says uh, the guy was an old world craftsman. And yeah, yeah, and the guy looked like he was straight out of like Transylvania or something. Like that's what they wanted you to believe, um, you know, that he's that he had some kind of mystic ability. I mean, in the Wolfman movies, a lot of the time they go to the gypsies for advice or mm. you know, protection or things like that. So it almost felt like that moment where they went and they got like their talisman um, to fight with. But they're definitely right. Like so far, like it seems like silver and everything I've watched is the most constant mention and uh, form of death for werewolf. Which is good that they did that here with the, uh, it was nice with the silver bullet and the, the wheelchair named silver bullet and everything. So pretty good. Oh, also something that was right out of the uh, Universal Monsters movie when they're, when they're all like fumbling around in the forest and the guy gets caught in a bear trap. <laughs> there's, bear, <laughs> there's bear traps in the original Wolfman movie. I couldn't oh. believe that that, that that was definitely like a, like a shout out. I love how the wolf and then again, 
by default, the priest loses an eye by an errant firework from uh, Corey Hain. I thought that was cool. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a second. Like, what, a, what an amazing uncle. But, you know, his sister is Corey's mom. And she's like, you know, you got to clean up your act if you want to hang out. But you're good with the kids and I need you around and this stuff. And then he goes and makes Corey, like this death trap of a motorcycle thing and it's like his parents are totally cool with it and they're like out they're out back having a barbecue at night while there's a werewolf on the loose i was like jesus and then he's like oh let me go walk uncle to his car and he turns on his motorcycle and it's like deafening he's like i'll be right back (laughs) so impractical i love it and it's like the parents let him keep that and the parents are totally fine with him having the fireworks and i was like oh he's gonna kill the werewolf or he's at least gonna use those on the werewolf in the final battle but he uses them like right away there is a werewolf on the loose and he sneaks out of his house at night to go like a couple miles down the road and shoot off fireworks i thought he was just gonna climb on his roof you're ringing a bell it's a dinner bell you're shooting fireworks in the air alone in the woods what are you thinking (laughs) side note on that barbecue um, you had the classic dad is grilling with the chef's hat. Oh, <laughs> you don't see that. It's a trope, but like I can't remember a lot of films that actually do that. And it doesn't seem like it was like for comedic reasons. He just, I've never ever been to a barbecue and the the dad has a chef hat. <laughs> well, I know what I'm getting you. <laughs> we should get Kyle there. one. We should get Kyle. There you go. Yeah, he is the chef. <laughs> Um, can I go back to a couple kills? I think so. I was also disappointed that another guy gets killed. He's like pulled through the floorboards and he gets like a, he gets like a plank through the heart and that's, and like, so like the wolf doesn't even kill that guy. Really? The baseball bat that we mentioned a lot, he takes it from one of the guys in the fog and well, what was written on it? Um, Oh, so like on the baseball bat is written peacemaker. (laughs) that was pretty funny in light of like the peacemaker tv show (laughs) like there's this there's a guy in a mob like a lynch mob technically and he's got a bat that says peacemaker i was like this tracks perfectly with the you know the logic of that superhero (laughs) yeah absolutely seeing that i thought i was in a different movie i know we keep going back to this this bat but like it just (laughs) felt so different this is technically a horror movie right but there are yeah. just moments that don't feel like horror, a horror movie. It just feels like a adventure movie. No, yeah, you're right. Or like a fantasy thing or like just a, even just a slasher film. Because they say once or twice that the werewolf, you know, maimed someone and pulled them apart. But for the most part, he doesn't. Like he doesn't really do a lot of werewolf kills in this, which is what was kind of surprising for me. You know, which is why I think I'm harping so hard on this bat stuff um, is because if you're going to pick up a baseball bat, you know, pick something else up, like throw a brick, like do more things, you know, like what's to stop a werewolf from like putting on a hat and coat and like shooting a gun, you know, (laughs) that's just where my head goes. When I think of the monsters, the traditional monsters, where the werewolf or wolfman or whatever, the wolf genre of person seems Mm -hmm. like the most chaotic or one of the most chaotic of the pantheon, right? Yeah, because he is, or they are, you know, he, she, they are, uh, when they transform, there's still human there. Like, it's 
it's a little harder to explain, I guess, with like vampires, like the bloodlust takes over, I guess, you know, and like you're truly undead and you're like you're not a human anymore at all. Like uh, a mummy was a human, okay, but like it doesn't have that much cognitive ability. It can really just like be pointed in a certain direction, I guess. Um, <laughs> same, same, sir, no, it is like in the movies, at least that seems to be it's like more of like a like a henchman or something like that uh, to like the high priest and what their goals ultimately are. Same sort of with Frankenstein's monster, you know, like it is, uh, it doesn't really think that much for itself. It, it, it appears to look human, but it really, it's, it's got the human emotions, but it doesn't really have like any of the logic built into it or anything. But the Wolfman is like derived from when humans went insane. Like that's sort of where the legend comes from comes from so it's like there's a very base humanity to the idea of the of the monster in the first place that sort of in my mind anyway and i don't know if any of this is bullshit or it's coming across as making any sense but this is just the way i think about it that to me sort of sets it apart makes it more chaotic and complex and sort of harder to pin down and i think that's why there might be sort of a wider variety of like rules and stuff when it comes to that monster that definitely makes sense Anything else in the film you want to talk about? I mean, yeah. So, um, I liked the scene we were sort of talking about before a minute where the Reverend is chasing down Corey after some kind of baseball, baseball practice or something. And he gets stuck on that Beetlejuice bridge, you know, like the old rickety bridge from Funny farm. Um, (laughs) He's stuck stuck on one of those bridges. That scene was insane. Like I genuinely enjoyed that sequence just because I'd never really seen that. Or if I had, it's been a long time where there's just like, Voldemort and Harry Potter where he was like really going after him he's like I'm gonna kill this kid and it's gonna be the greatest feeling ever <laughs> it's like <laughs> gain some sort of like power from this and he almost runs Corey like off the road off the bridge like I was really like jumping in my seat for a minute and plus it was like a high-speed chase so Brian I honestly thought I was like is Fast and the Furious going to get some kind of high-powered wheelchair in one of their movies, like a rocket chair of some kind like this? Like that, <laughs> that would be kind of cool. Yeah. Um, it, remind, it just gave me it gave me sort of flashbacks to, uh, you know, Corey hanging off of the back of the pickup truck on the chain link fence in that one action movie. So Corey, Corey Chase vibes. Yeah, well, we got, we got a decent amount of action. The Fast and Furious guys maybe need to check this film out. Oh, God. What other film has this kind of wheelchair car chase? I've never seen one, ever. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every Corey film we watch, there's at least one thing that we've never seen before. I agree with that. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely true. There's a couple things in this one I don't think I'd seen before either. Oh. But certainly that when Gary Busey opens up the garage door and we see the new silver bullet, I was like, I paused it and took a picture of my phone. I was like, what am I going to do with that? Like, (laughs) I was like, I don't know why I did that, but I had the instinct to be like, holy shit, that's awesome. I've never seen that before in a movie. You know, (laughs) it's like one of those times. There were several times in this, like the transformations aren't amazing, but like they're still cool and interesting and, you know, they pull out all the tricks and I think it's I think it's better than the actual werewolf looking thing itself. It's just so wild. Like honestly, Brian, like when Terry O'Quinn 
finds is like snooping around the reverend's garage and he finds the reverend just like sitting there in the garage or whatever and the reverend is like transforming and mid transformation he picks up the bat and beats terry o'quinn to death with it i'm like what is even the point just kill him as a human just be a human pick up the bat and beat him over the head with it or something just yeah fun fun but confusing but still fun. Fun is the bottom line. Like I still had, I still like this movie. I enjoyed it. I even though it's got shortcomings, it's going to frustrate a lot of people. But I think I might be joining the cult fandom of this one. I think the transformations too, as we said, are really good. Um, in the end, when they end up shooting him with the silver bullet, we think it's going to be Gary Busey, but it ends up being uh, Corey Haim, right? Yeah, he's a great shot. First, he shoots him in the eye with a bottle rocket, and then at the end, he shoots him right in the eye with the only silver bullet that they have. Yeah, the brother and sister had pendants, I think, that they melted down. Both eyes are gone, and when he transforms, the werewolf transforms back into the reverend, sans eyes, and I thought that was a really cool image. Yeah, I thought that was cool. I thought it was cool that the wolfman wasn't like overpowered either in the sense that he didn't grow his eye back, right? Like it was cool that they left that in because it became, or it would have been the tell for the Reverend if they didn't sort of spoil it 20 minutes earlier with the fever dream <laughs> that he was the werewolf. I like that they sort of used their own rules in a lot of ways. Like he got, he got his eye taken out as a werewolf. So when he turned back to a human, he didn't need to like go to the hospital or anything like that. It was just, it was healing faster, but it wasn't immediate. And so I thought that was cool. And then just super bizarre imagery. It reminded me of like when, I don't know if you saw that one, was it once upon a time in Mexico where Johnny Depp ends up like losing both eyes at the end and becomes the blind gunsman. He's like the blind gunslinger in that one. And it looks kind of like that when the wolf transforms back into like Big Ed without his eyes. I was like, that is just, oh man, that is just weird. Very weird. Very weird. But like, I kind of wish it ended there. Not that, not that the ending we get spoils it, but just tone wise, it's just again, Jane, the teenage girl here kind of narrating, like we hugged each other. And loved each other. I forgot the line she exactly says, but something like, and we loved each other forever for the rest of our lives. It's like, what? I definitely expected to hear that, like, yeah, Corey went on to try and, like, break up an argument at a diner one day and got stabbed. (laughs) (laughs) That is definitely how it felt. (laughs) You know, I was trying to put my finger on it the whole time. I was like, why isn't this voiceover working? And it's like, oh, you're right, because it implies that Corey's going to die. And he never does. <laughs> That's how she's reading it. <laughs> like, I remember my brother. And it's like, what do you mean you remember your brother? You're about to go see him in 10 minutes. Like, he's still <laughs> alive. No, he lives around the corner. Or, you know. And I was actually surprised we didn't get that either. Like, a, a modern mm. shot. Or, or just some kind of also explanation of why this story takes place in the past. <laughs> Dude, how amazing if in the voiceover you hear like, and this is like at the end, it's all part of the voiceover. You just hear like a knock and you go like, hey, sis, you ready? And she goes, come in. <laughs> that would be a first for voiceovers. Or would you have wanted the Michael Jackson thriller ending where we get that like, hey, sis, you're coming? And, and it's the two. And then Corey Haim t- tilts his head and he's the werewolf the whole time. <laughs> mm, or I, maybe, mm, maybe if it was Busey. 
I think that would have worked. Oh, better. yeah. You know, Busey was just like, all right, kids, come on. I better get you home before your parents wonder where you are. And then he's just like, hold on, I forgot something. And he goes back and he picks up like his wild turkey and then he turns to the camera and he's just like, yeah. I'll tell you what, yeah. if, if people think this is a cult classic now, it would have been like on a different stratosphere if that was the ending. <laughs> it would have been a it would have been a smash hit at the time. <laughs> That's what would have happened. You know, people wouldn't have to have discovered this movie 20 years later. It would have just, uh, yeah, it would have just been a, you know, front row blockbuster for 30 years. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Anything else you want to mention in Silver Bullet or should we get to our awards? Um, I really love this idea of like kids in horror movies. And I used to feel like that was kind of cheap in a way you know because like they're already super vulnerable as people because they're so like you know they're little kids and stuff so some of them are like weak and you know aren't they don't think straight but i don't get the vibe of that from here like i feel like these kids are smart they're gonna survive like they know what to do it has much more of like that monster squad vibe like i get the same feeling from that movie um, I just feel like it's kind of a trope when you th- like in Friday the 13th, they started doing that a lot. And with Corey Feldman, it's like, well, now that I see a little kid running around Camp Crystal Lake, like I'm instantly on edge, you know, and I feel like that's almost like a cheat or a shortcut, but not not anymore. Like that was then I don't you know, that was just at one point in my life, how I feel about like kids and horror films. I love it. Like, I think there should be way more horror movies for kids. I think there should be way more sort of geared towards kids. I think the Goosebumps movies are really great movies for kids. They're they're spooky and scary, but they're also funny. Um, they're sort of like the way Ghostbusters used to play almost to me. That's the way, the way I kind of think of those Goosebumps movies. So, yeah, I mean, I just wish that this was, I mean, by today's standards, I, I could see, you know, teenagers and kids under 13 watching this and and having no problem compared to what else is out there today. But I understand at the time why this was rated R. I just wish that they did the necessary cuts to make this more geared towards kids, more kids centric, more kids stuff in it. I mean, a kid gets eaten by a werewolf in this. So like, (laughs) you know, right there, there's some boy who cried wolf sort of parallels and things like, I really wish they pushed it in that direction way harder. But for Stephen King, screenplay about uh, an obscure novella that he wrote you know and a very early Corey movie starring gary Busey. like i yeah i had a good time <laughs> it's <just> really weird <laughs> yeah like we could pick apart this movie all we want but was it fun absolutely you know this was a fun movie i can't say enough about it i mean can't, yeah. i can't say much more about it yeah <laughs> positive or negative it was fun I love that. I can't can't say enough about it. Well, I can't say much more about it. (laughs) It's true. It's like someone... (laughs) That's more accurate. You know what I mean? Like, Definitely. No, yeah, we said all the... I said everything I want to say. (laughs) All right. I think this is a very important question today. Who was this movie made for? Oh, man, that's what we've been trying to figure out here most of the night, right? Um... I, I think there was just in the 80s, it seems like, I mean, there were there was just a lot of horror in general. I mean, there's always been a lot of horror, but there just seemed to be a lot of horror in the 80s and a lot of good stuff and a lot of innovative stuff. And like the makeup was coming along and people were really thinking of cool ways to do crazy stuff with makeup and, and things. And so like there are a lot of zombie movies, there are a lot of Dracula movies, there are a lot of werewolf movies. And 
I think this is just them saying like, what do we have a werewolf property? Like, let me buy like, oh, I'm Dino De Laurentiis. I have a Stephen King property. Oh, I have a Stephen King werewolf movie. All right, sweet. Like, let's make this and throw it on the pile of all the other werewolf stuff. There's like Wolfen and the Howling and American Werewolf in London, like lots of stuff coming out. Bad Moon, you know. Uh, so I think this is just, you know, for Stephen King fans or to sort of feed the mass the masses like feed the people going to all those werewolf movies and just being like, here's another one of those. Now that's how it feels to me because it's sort of the production value and the level of all that kind of thing. But deep down, this is a really fun one and like it deserves sort of a second watch or, or a closer look. Now the first, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Like I, I, I didn't expect to have as much fun with it. I think it got better for me as we went along and that's the deal with it. Like it just, it kind of picks up steam and it keeps picking up steam and it keeps going down that road and it keeps getting better as it goes along. And so, yeah, definitely. I don't know exactly who this was made for, but <laughs> I, I didn't answer the question. I talked, I talked myself out of the answer somehow, <laughs> but it's made for you and me. There it's you go. Land is your land. <laughs> Most likely to succeed. Which character won the movie? Hmm. Well, I had no concern for Marty. Like, I know he's probably going to grow up and, and, you know, be a good inventor or, or do something good and creative and be successful. Um, Uncle Red will probably stay sober. I think it's Jane. I think Jane, the sister, because her brother really upset her at the beginning with that snake prank, and it took them surviving a werewolf encounter for her to forgive him you know i don't think she's gonna wait that long <laughs> in the future to forgive somebody or whatever or like i don't know what i'm trying to say necessarily uh, i think she won because she managed to make up with her brother and survive a werewolf attack basically <laughs> yeah i mean that's a good choice um i think I, I'll, I'll be talking about her a little bit later Another award. So, uh, Wooderson Award. Is there a character here who you would have liked to have seen more? Um, I mean, I feel like a bunch of characters could have used some more development, but maybe, maybe Terry O'Quinn as the sheriff, because <laughs> I feel like I feel like he shows up late and he leaves early. So I could use a, a little more of him. It would have been fun if he was maybe involved in the climax, like they got him to believe there was a werewolf. Um, well, I mean, he does see it firsthand, so eventually he believes before he dies. But I, <laughs> in the movie, it would have been cool if he was still around at some point. Well, I said Jane for this award because I, I know it's, it sounds weird because I've been saying how like the Busey Haim stuff is so good in this, but I, I think you can flesh out her character more without taking away from that. I'd like a little bit more balance between the brother yeah. and sister justify her her uh voiceover and to kind of justify how she's also they're positioning her as a main character but we're just not getting it i'd like to see her in school i'd like to see how she interacts with the town i'd like to see a little bit more of that sibling rivalry at the beginning it would make the end make more sense of like oh we learn to love each other right like so she's my pick for this one very very good answer i like that answer a lot yeah Next question. Long Duck Dong Award. Is there a character whose omission would make the film better? Hmm. I don't think so. 
I was trying to think Do about you? this too. Uh, it's a pretty economical film. Maybe it's a De Laurentiis yeah, thing, yeah. but I don't know. And at one point, the movie, the story does this thing where it's like, there's a curfew, so you don't have to leave town, but they show a bunch of people leaving town anyway. <laughs> and uh, there's like a mention when they go grocery shopping, I guess, like how, how dead it is. Um, so like that's one way they get rid of a lot of background actors and characters. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I didn't have an answer for this one. So... And then Cameron Fry Ward, we don't really see high schoolers, so we can't really determine if people are too old to be a high schooler, so we're going to have to skip that one. So let's get straight to the grading. Mike, I'm going to hand you the manila card, the red pen, A to F scale, as always. However, we always have to provide the cheat sheet to our guests. So Rotten Tomatoes, 45% by the critics, 56% by the audience. However, however, the nerds at Letterboxd, 3.2 out of 5, which is a pretty good score. So, throw those away, Mike. A plus F scale. What will you grade? Silver Bullet. I am giving Silver Bullet. Uh, now, mind you, this is the first time I've watched it end to end, and uh, there's a lot. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot to comprehend. Um, I think I'm a big fan because of the Busey Haim stuff. The, the craziness of a werewolf that uses a baseball bat to kill people. Uh, <laughs> this guy who goes on to direct a lot of great television. I think I'm going to have to, and I was, I was on the edge there. I think I'm going to have to give it a B minus. I was going to give it a C plus. I think I'm going to give it the edge, give it a B minus today. I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like that. You know, I think I'm, I'm reverting back to my old self. <laughs> it's not quite an A plus, but I'm gonna get a B minus. I actually had the same grade because it's just like good, harmless fun, you know, B minus, right? Like, I'm not like yeah. cult classic. This is amazing A movie, but there's not enough for me to knock here. <laughs> so B minus no, it no. is. Yeah, there's enough here to remake this or mine this for a, another movie. Do another go and flesh it out. I think that there's issues and things in here that would play really well in a modern day especially if you had uh like a proper disabled actor playing the lead role you know i mean that's worked in like a quiet place and i preferred that kind of stuff if, you know if you if possible so that would be really i think something people haven't really seen too much of that's very suspenseful like just i was saying like just this character of Corey being in the chair put into a horror movie situation um like it you know like yeah you're like uh he, he's more vulnerable like he just is you know so like it's more dangerous so i thought that was kind of an interesting twist to the movie couldn't agree more Ooh. sleeping bag question silver bullet what does your silver bullet theme sleeping bag look like the one you're bringing to this good old slumber party that we're having oh brother i mean what else can it look like uh, i i feel like i did this we did Teen Wolf, right? I feel like I might have done this for Teen Wolf or something. Like, uh, it's just going to be like a big werewolf looking thing. <laughs> I'm going to get in it. I'm going to zip it up and it's going to look like I turned into a werewolf. I like it. I like it. Maybe I did this one too for Teen Wolf or something else, but mine's just going to be silver, you know, like a sheen Ooh. silver sleeping bag. It's going to be, it doesn't even have to have the definition of the bullet, but I just want it to look like, you know, a silver bullet. Yeah. You'll be protected. <laughs> If, if we get attacked. <laughs> All right, Mike. You know my favorite question every week. You and I are in the magical blockbuster. Right. That is every film that has ever existed in the history of film. 
Um, we know we are renting Stephen King's Silver Bullet for our slumber party, but we get to the counter, we see a sign that says rent two movies. Get one free. And I say, Mike, go to the back. Get two other movies for us to rent with Silver Bullet. What two other movies should be in our rental triple feature? Okay. So the first one, I think today we're going to have a werewolf triple feature. Nice. I think we'll do it like that. I think we'll we'll, we'll play it like that. And um, so this first movie, this is a crazy werewolf movie from... 1984 British goth fantasy horror. It's got Angela Lansbury in it. <laughs> um, it's called The Company of Wolves. And Interesting. Never heard of this one. It's insane. It's sort of like partially takes part, part of it, if I remember correctly, is like it's like a dream. It, there's a lot of dream logic going on. It, it's very Red Riding Hood. And I remember there very much playing with my expectations and I've been wanting to rewatch this one for a long time. And uh, yeah, so the company of wolves. Love it. What's your next pick? My next pick actually want to mention this because I really like this movie and not just because it's on my other show, the monsters that made us and you can listen to a podcast on this, but Frankenstein meets the Wolfman from 1943. Like, you don't need to have seen a Frankenstein movie or a Wolfman movie to get this because they, I felt like they really do a great job of catching you up and doing all the exposition stuff pretty fluidly in this movie. So like, it's a crazy concept. It was the first time the universal monsters met up like this. It's the second Wolfman movie. It's like the fifth Frankenstein movie. And yeah, I just, it was a really good one. I really liked this one. It was a really good time. So that's my werewolf triple feature. Love it. Love it. This this seems like it's going to be, you know, an awesome, awesome slumber party that we would be having with Monster Mike himself. And speaking of <laughs> which, I'm sure one of the shows you're going to promote today is The Monsters That Made Us. Oh, yeah. So Monsters That Made Us with my co-host, the Invisible Dan Cologne. Is the last Friday of every month where we are going through all of the original Universal Monster horror films, all the Universal Monster movies, the Universal made horror films that didn't have the monsters, these monsters in them. Hopefully we'll get to those as well. But right now we're sticking to the main monsters. So that's the last Friday of every month. Then Brian is my unofficial co-host on Third Time's a Charm as well as Second Time Around, which you can catch <laughs> at cageclub.me. Facebook.com slash Cage Club or at Cage Club Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Third Time to Charm, where I look at the third installment of a franchise. Second time around, where I look at, is the sequel better than the original? Hmm. Um, <laughs> you can find that and all the other shows I'm at at CageClub.me. Mike, always a pleasure. We got a couple more Corey to do this year and some other fun yeah. stuff planned. So thanks as always and talk to you soon. Uh, thanks. Thank you so much, Brian. It was a blast. You know, if they do pull the plug on this show, I'm going to miss that guy. Mike Manzi, what a mensch. Bravo, bravo. Great job today, Monster Mike. Definitely check out The Monsters That Made Us. It is a very, very, very popular show because it is well-made and it has two great hosts in Mike Manzi and Dan Cologne. Check it out and check out High School Slumber Party next week because... The fate of High School Slumber Party will be decided. No trailer because we're not doing a movie. We're just going to hug it out, talk it out. It'll be our 300th episode. 
Will it be a celebration? Will it be a funeral? You'll have to tune in and listen. Remember, you can check out the archive of this show at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And really, wherever you get your podcast. Something I've been telling myself lately as I work my way through the struggles here in High School Slumber Party is that life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it. Later, dudes, for what might be the second to last time. It's over. Go home. Go.